The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice? Then register for Psychedelic Harm Reduction and Integration, a professional training offered by psychologist Elizabeth Nielsen and Ingmar Gorman at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. With your host, metaphysician, Reiki master, and hypnotherapist, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week, we will discover teachings, tips, and tools to radiate your best life ever with practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Welcome back to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. Today, we radiate non-judgment with Greg Hammer, MD, who's a return guest from all the way from Stanford. Um, Greg Hammer, MD, is a professor at Stanford University School of Medicine, pediatric intensive care physician, pediatric anesthesiologist, mindfulness expert, and author of Gain Without Pain, the Happiness Handbook for Healthcare professionals. Uh, thank you so much for joining me again, Dr. Hammer. This is just a, a joy. You're a great guest. Thank you, Christy. Truly my pleasure. Oh, I'm just so happy to have you. So we're talking today about non-judgment. So I think we all kind of think of judgment as a kind of a dirty word. What's your take on non-judgment? Well, I would start by saying that non-judgment is really an essential ingredient to mindfulness, which I think was the topic Mm -hmm. that we discussed last time. Mindfulness, as defined by one of its really fathers or grandfathers and a hero of mine, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, he defines as awareness of the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. And I think that could be read as happiness is the awareness of the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. So non-judgment really is a key to happiness. Um, as you know, we discussed my first book, which was uh, Gain Without Pain. And the gain is an acronym for what I think are the four pillars of happiness. Right. And they are gratitude, acceptance, intention, and non-judgment. So I think that whatever your approach to happiness, whether it's some relatively organized philosophy or religion or your own creation of path, non-judgment has to be on that path. 
I think it is as essential to happiness as, for example, gratitude, acceptance, and intention. And, uh, you know, we can talk much more about that. But I, I love Dr. Kabat-Zinn's definition of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. uh, it really has essential ingredients, awareness of the present moment, the on-purpose part, which is the I and gain or intention, and non-judgment. Right. So, you know, we've covered non-judgment. So what do you feel judgment is? Judgment is a process that seems to be part of our brain's hardwiring system. That is, our brains seem to be programmed to evaluate everything in our environment, things that we see, hear, taste, feel, and we, in the process of evaluating those experiences, tend to categorize them in a variety of ways. So our brain is sort of a, it's, uh, you might think of it as a motor of reductionism. It tends to break things down into their component parts, analyze them, and one could see the evolutionary benefit of that, how our brains developed the way they did. We can talk about that. But the point is that the brain just sort of automatically in its default mode is wired to observe, analyze, and judge. And I think, uh, I'm glad we have an hour to discuss this because it's a big topic. But one important thing I think off the bat is really to understand the difference between judgment and discerning. Yeah. Right. We can discern without judging, but our brains do tend to naturally judge. And as we may have discussed the last time we met Christy, our brains are also hardwired with a negativity bias. Yeah. And another property they have is that we tend to be very distracted by the past and the future, and we have a hard time being present. Yeah. So the wiring that is our default mechanism for which we have a negativity bias, inability to be present or difficulty being present, and the constant judging all veil or interfere with our ability to be happy. And let's face it, the one thing that all 7 billion of us want is to be happy. And fortunately, the good news is that our brains have this wonderful quality called neuroplasticity. And that means that we can actually change the way we think. Um, but we have to recognize what our default ways of thinking are and how we want them to be. And then the process to changing the way we think. Yes, absolutely. So really... <clears throat> judgment, as you define it, is more like categorizing, determining. It's this or that. It fits here in this box or there in that box. Am I following correctly? Yes, and I also think that it involves casting a hue, that is, seeing things as good or bad or better or worse or too much or too little, so not only do we categorize and reduce things to their component parts, but we tend to veil those things. So we're sort of looking at the world with 
tinted glasses. And you know, some people look at the glasses being half full and some is half empty. And maybe it is that the half full people look at the world with rose colored glasses and the half empty crowd looks at the world with some other tint, which has a negativity. Mm-hmm. So whether it is we tend to judge as good or bad, those are actually both judgments. And they mean that we're not seeing the world, we're not seeing people, we're not seeing the objects of our uh, experience exactly the way they are. We're coloring them with this tint that seems to affect the way we see things and and encounter the world around us. Right. So our mindset will influence our our judgment, whether that's we judge things as good or bad. So you know, you talked about neuroplasticity. Is it possible to change that mindset to be away from? You know, and like we judge naturally, right? We just kind of like you said, we're wired for that. But some people are just wired to to judge things in terms of negative terms. Is it possible to change that mindset? Yes, absolutely. No, I think, as I said, you know, we all know that there's sort of the glasses have empty people and the glasses have full people. Unfortunately, the majority of people are glasses half empty folks. You know, we tend to look at things with a negativity bias. Mm -hmm. We tend to remember things that are negative, hurtful, uh, don't meet our apparent wants and needs. uh, And we sort of forget the positive things. Uh, And and there are some nice examples of that in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we judge, we're not seeing things as they truly are. And so the question is, do we need to judge at all? Is judgment something that really just uses a lot of our mind's energy, but doesn't really get us anywhere? And I believe that to be generally true. And, you know, I think that will strike some people as odd that, you know, why not judge things in a positive way? And I think that we can be positive without judging. Mm. And again, we need to discern, but we don't have to judge. For example, you know, those of us that are glass half full types tend to gravitate toward others who look at the world similarly. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really want to spend a lot of time with somebody who's very negative, who talks about other people in a negative manner. You know, that sort of brings me down a bit. And, you know, of course, probably like you, I'm attracted to people who are happy and positive. Mm-hmm. So I need to discern how our how is this person disposed? How are my conversations with this person going to go? What's my coffee with this person going to be like? But I don't have to judge the person. So I can discern that this person tends to see the glass as half empty. They tend to be negative a lot. We tend when we're together to uh, get into conversations about other people. And this other person tends to have negative things to say about others and themselves perhaps. And 
do I want to spend my time with that person or would I prefer to be with somebody who's a little bit more like I am and positive and optimistic and relatively happy so I can discern, but I don't have to call this person who's got this strong negativity bias a bad person in any way at all. Um, in fact, maybe my heart goes out to them, but I don't have to judge them. I can simply discern that perhaps I would prefer having coffee with Christy rather than Joe. Mm-hmm. You know, my clients overwhelmingly have what they feel are issues with judgment and would like assistance to be out of judgment, to not be in a judgmental and judgmental way. What would you tell someone who would like to switch the, their judgment to more of discernment? Well, of course, I would recommend the GAIN method. Mm-hmm. And in the GAIN method, we wake up in the morning, we open the blinds. I think that natural light is really important in the beginning of the day. We can do our hygiene thing. And then we find a comfortable place to sit doesn't have to be in a particular position. It can be in a chair. It can be on the floor, on a pillow. It can be on the edge of our bed or a sofa. And we close our eyes and we get in touch with our breath. We slow it down. This slows down our heart rate, lowers our blood pressure, decreases the amount of adrenaline that's circulating in our body. And then we go to contemplating that for which we're grateful, which is the G in gain. Mm Uh, So I'm grateful for the opportunity to connect with you again, Christy. Mm -hmm. I'm grateful for the privilege of doing the work that I do and helping kids and their families. It's a great honor. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful for being in a safe place, et cetera. I I can picture the people that I love for which I'm grateful. And then we transition to acceptance. Acceptance is the acknowledgement that life has joy, but also pain. And again, we are induced to discern, is this a pain that I can do something about or not? And if the answer is no, I can't change it. I'm best served by accepting it. And there's a formula in the book, and I'm getting to judgment, by the way. (laughs) Since we have an hour, I figured I would take the longer route because I think these gain elements are all interrelated. I think that gratitude, acceptance, and tension are closely related to non-judgment. So I would recommend that people have a practice that embraces each of these elements. But acceptance, uh, as I mentioned, there's a formula in the book, suffering equals pain times resistance. So the pain is there, Mm -hmm. and the more we resist it, the more we suffer. And resistance takes various forms. It can be just trying hard not to think about something that's bothering us. It can be saying it ain't so. It can be if it's another person that's involved depersonalizing that individual. I'm saying, oh, they brought this on to themselves, et cetera, and sort of packaging it that way. But all those are, are forms of resistance. And pain times resistance is suffering. And so when we do that, it actually increases our suffering. You know, I I sometimes envision Christ on the cross with stakes through his hands and feet, undoubtedly in a lot of pain, but yet 
I imagine that his resistance dropped to zero. That is, he completely accepted his circumstances based on his wisdom. And when resistance goes to zero, suffering goes to zero. So there can be pain without suffering. And some people say, well, pain is, is there, suffering is a choice. It is in a manner of speaking, I think, because we can choose to accept, but it's not our default way of thinking. And so we have to have a practice that is directed at acceptance, just as we have to have a practice directed at non-judgment. It's not our natural way of thinking. And that's what Dr. Kabat-Zinn, when he said, when, what he meant when he said that happiness or mindfulness is awareness of the present moment on purpose, because we have to do it on purpose. We have to have a practice. We have to have a plan. Otherwise, our brains sort of go into their default way of maybe being ungrateful and negative and resisting and being judgmental. And then during this three to five minute practice in the morning, we've contemplated that for which we're grateful, that we accept, we contemplate our intention. So what I teach and what I practice is spend five seconds using your intention to be aware of what's happening in this moment. And that means listen. Of course, our eyes are closed. We're not looking. Listen to the sounds that you hear in your environment. Maybe there's an airplane in the distance that's slowly going past and you hear this sort of Doppler effect of the change in frequency as it approaches and then gets further away. Mm -hmm. Listen for perhaps that sound of an automobile or even sometimes the ringing in your ears. And then experience the sensations, the tingling on the bottom of your feet or the pressure that the chair is pushing against you where you sit. Mm -hmm. Just spend five seconds doing this because again, our default mode is to be very distracted by the past and future in ways that are not necessarily adaptive and happiness is in the present moment. So spend five seconds purposefully, intentionally being present. And then also use your intention for thinking of things in a positive manner. Again, we're trying to rewire the brain away from our negativity bias. So spend five or 15 seconds thinking of the experiences that you might label or judge as negative, but think of them on the flip side. As Think of the silver lining or the positive elements. Mm -hmm. And then we, as we continue to breathe slowly and focus on our breath, we transition finally to the end and gain, which is non-judgment. And here is in answer to your question, mm -hmm. my uh, practice and, and what I teach is when we get to this end for non-judgment, picture the earth itself, apparently suspended in space, one of these gorgeous NASA images of our lovely planet. And just see it in your mind's eye, again, with our eyes closed, breathing slowly. Think of that planet as being neither good nor bad. The earth is neither good nor bad. The earth is simply the planet that it is. And sort of contemplate that for five or 10 seconds and then 
transition to the only logical conclusion when we think of ourselves, we are also neither good nor bad. We are simply the person that we are. I am simply the person that I am. I am neither good nor bad. I am the person that I am. And then as I focus again on my breath, I sort of say to myself, I am. I am slowly inhaling, pausing, and exhaling without effort a few times, and then opening my eyes slowly. And I feel like I'm now ready to go out in the world. And what is one of the real benefits of this practice is that when we are being ungrateful or resisting or allowing our default mode of thinking that veils our happiness to simply do its thing. And, and we forget that we can purposefully change the way we think, or when we are judging often negatively, a little light bulb goes off now because we've just done our gain meditation and we carry this with us throughout the day. We can return to it in one or two breaths as we walk down the hall or as we go into the coffee shop to meet a friend, or as I go into a patient's room to see a sick patient in the intensive care unit, I pause for a moment, just really five seconds and focus on my breath and these gain elements. And then I find that when I'm judging someone negatively, a little light bulb goes off and I recognize what I'm doing and I have a bit of a laugh over it. Why is that? So I tell a story in the book that I'm, I'm lucky, as, as you and I were discussing before we went on the air, uh, I have a home on Stanford campus. I ride my bike to work. I ride through a beautiful little path, um, narrow pathway that's kind of cobblestones. And yeah. overhead, the, the trees create this beautiful canopy and the light is filtering through early in the morning as I'm pedaling to work. And as I'm going down this path, I see that there's somebody ahead of me on foot going in the same direction that I am. And I get a little closer and I see that person has buds in his ears. And then I get a little closer and I see that he's looking at his screen. And then I get a little closer and I see, well, he's right in the middle of the path, which is narrow. He's in my way. And I'm starting to form judgments. This person is walking down this beautiful lane. Why are they looking at their screen? They're really out of touch. And they're being inconsiderate because they're walking right in the middle of the path, blocking anybody's way who wants to go by. And a light bulb goes off. I just did my game practice and I reminded myself that the earth and its inhabitants are neither good nor bad. They simply are who they are. And I laugh and drop the judgment. And as I pedal by this person, I look at him and smile and he looks at me and smiles. And lo and behold, it's a pleasant interaction instead of a negative interaction where I frown at him with judgment and he's thinking, what the heck? So the practice, again, has to be purposeful and we can rewire the way we think in baby steps. You know, we, we got this way over tens of thousands of years of evolution. We're not going to change overnight but we can chip away at it with our intention and gradually 
rewire the way we think. And that rewiring includes becoming less judgmental, one little baby step at a time. Yeah, I love that. I love it. <clears throat> so what benefits does this have for us to get out of non uh, to get out of judgment? Well, I think just, you know, just as I explained, you know, I'm, I'm pedaling past this guy on the path. And instead of having a frown, I have a smile on my face and it's actually, oh, good morning. It's nice to see you, you know, is the way I'm feeling now. And I get a little hit of dopamine instead of a little hit of adrenaline, you know, or something that's going to provoke anxiety and negativity. So the benefit is we become a little bit happier the less we judge mm -hmm. and we begin little by little to see the world as it actually is and this is really uplifting i mean i don't have to look at that flower and judge oh it's kind of on its way out the edges are wilting a little bit it's too bad it's not attractive anymore no, I can see that flower for exactly as it is, just going through its natural biologic phases of being a flower. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you start to see things as neutral with a slightly positive hue, I would say, because I think that's the way the world is. I think the world is net net slightly positive positive. <laughs> <laughs> and we just have to observe it we just have to recognize it i suppose yeah. yeah are you a healthcare professional looking to translate psychedelic research into practice then register for psychedelic harm reduction and integration a professional training offered by psychologist elizabeth nielsen and ingmar gorman at the omega institute in rhinebeck new york may 24 through 26 Earn 12 continuing education credits as you discover how to better support clients who have an interest in psychedelics. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Did you know that Radiate Wellness is more than just a podcast? That's right. We're also a comprehensive holistic wellness practice. Find out about our services, practitioners, and upcoming events at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. While you're there, visit our podcast page to read more about our great guests and even donate to the podcast. 
If you like our podcast, you can help in other ways as well, like subscribe or follow us wherever you're listening right now. Tell a friend, a family member, or a co-worker about the great content you find here. And if you wouldn't mind, please give us a thumbs up, a five-star rating, or a positive review. Sounds like a small thing, but it really helps. You might like to know about our Facebook communities while we're at it. We have a free community, the Radiate Wellness Community, on Facebook for news and great free content. Our subscribers group is Radiate U, as in the letter U, but also, well, you. There you'll find curated replays of past classes, guest interviews, and more. And now, Back to our podcast and back to our guest. And so this, of course, over time will, you know, create some sort of positive flow within the brain. And so is this the, the neuroplasticity, neuroplasticity that you're talking about? How we Absolutely. No, it's, it's mindset. Yeah, it's becoming more grateful. Mm-hmm. It's becoming more accepting. It's learning to be cognizant that through our intention, we can be happier. And it's being less judgmental, little tiny baby step at a time. And yes, this is so empowering. So I think we're slowly becoming happier. I think if people have a practice like this, a daily practice, and you know, the game practice can be three minutes. So just set your alarm clock, as I tell my trainees, set your alarm clock three minutes earlier. So instead of getting up at six, you're getting up at 5.57. Who doesn't have three minutes? So in just a very short time every day, through our purposefulness, we can actually start to become happier. And, you know, this is empowering. It, it's, it's sort of self-propagating. Right. Because when you realize that through your own intention, you can actually become a happier person. You start to take control over your life. You realize you can actually slowly but surely take control over your thoughts Mm -hmm. and your happiness. And this is like really empowering. And then the more empowered we feel, the more we're disposed to growing this way of thinking and being. Mm-hmm. So, it. yeah. You mentioned trainees. So, do you train people in this way of you know the the gain experience? Yes. In fact, um, you know I do pediatric intensive care and and pediatric anesthesiology practice. Mm-hmm. I was at a boot camp for it was a three day uh, sort of crash course in resuscitation and pediatric intensive care practice for new fellows. So these are people that finished their three-year residency after medical school in pediatrics, and now they're doing three years of additional training in pediatric intensive care medicine. So they come to Stanford. We have this three-day boot camp, and they come from various parts of the country. And at one point in the boot camp, the faculty were asked if they could each offer one tip, if they could give one piece of advice to the 
new fellows, these trainees, what would it be? And I listened to my co-faculty say things about, oh, the importance of maintaining a good relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend, of, you know, staying in good physical shape, no matter what, and various other pieces of advice that I think are pretty intuitive. And when it came to me, I said, my advice would be develop a presence practice, develop a mindfulness practice, mm. learn and commit to practicing how to be aware of the present moment on purpose, non-judgmentally. And I expanded on that slightly. I said, this is something that is going to serve you well because your fellowship is going to be full of stress and lack of sleep, et cetera. And unless you have a practice, you're going to get overwhelmed at times. And then, you know, went on to the next person's advice. And I overheard two of my colleagues a little bit later, uh, I think as people were having lunch, uh, one saying to the other, you know, how silly that advice was, you know, that have a, have a presence of practice. I don't, I don't really think that fellows were, interested in that yeah. and I overheard it and uh, you know since then I've thought about that little interaction and my advice you know periodically it occurs to me I, I have this little memory of that that day and I only feel more and more confident that I gave the advice that I would give today if asked the same question because I think that you know people know how to I mean I I'm not saying that we're all good at having relationships with our boyfriends and girlfriends. But of course, those involved in relationships understand empirically that, yeah, it's important to be a good partner and so on. I don't think they need to be told that. Um, and most of us who are into fitness understand the importance of fitness, although I, I certainly would underscore that myself as something that is very important. But I, I, I still feel that that little pearl I offered, I don't know how many of the fellows took me up on it, but uh, if I had it to do over again, I think I would say the same thing. No, I agree. And that's something that you know the medical community definitely needs to have more of is mindfulness and the presence, being present. It's going to help patient outcomes if nothing else, if nothing else, but it's going to help each individual be a better physician, practitioner, provider, right? And person, yeah. I mean, our, you know, life is full of chronic stress at its best. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I got into physician wellness uh, as we formed a group at Stanford called WellMD to address the growing uh, pandemic, which it really is, was and is, of burnout in medicine, not just physicians, actually, but other healthcare providers as well. And that, that burnout rate, if you will, has just increased over the last three years for reasons that are fairly evident. But uh, I, I got into our wellness group and, uh, you know, gave a talk at a national meeting that uh, the group was asked to provide a, a faculty for and one thing led to another and one talk led to another. And I don't know how many talks I've given, many of them virtual, but now they're starting to be in person again. And workshops, I just gave one at a national meeting in San Francisco uh, last weekend on wellness. So I, I always like talking about my research and 
and elements of, of critical care and cardiac anesthesia practice. But uh, when asked to give a couple of talks at a meeting, um, I usually say, well, I'd, I'm happy to talk about one of these 10 topics and I'd like to talk about wellness. So I'm going to Istanbul in a couple of weeks and doing a wellness workshop as well as talking on a more academic topic. So right. yeah, it's something that I, I have really committed myself to. And, um, you know, I think it's going to be a lifelong passion. I think so. And I love how you melded the two worlds that seem kind of disparate, but they're really not. So no. how did you get into wellness and mindfulness in the first place? What is your background with that? Well, you know, I've always been a seeker. And about 10 or 11 years ago, uh, with the help of my brother, I met a spiritual teacher who teaches Advaita or non-duality. Mm. And with the help of this individual, I think it was sort of the culmination of various processes that were going on in my life at that time, I realized there's nothing for which to look. It's already there. And so I had been a meditator off and on. I started meditating on this more consistently. And I've all, always been a fitness enthusiast and somebody who is very passionate about nutrition. My undergraduate degrees in nutritional science, the biochemistry major. Um, Nutrition has always been a very important part of my critical care practice. We tend to starve our little patients who are recovering from major surgery and trauma and uh, systemic infection and so on. When they need lots of calories and extra nutrition, we tend to not feed them for days and days. So that's something that I enjoy teaching and focusing on in my critical care practice. So all these things kind of came together when this WellMD group convened at Stanford, um, you know, I've always had an interest in wellness. And so this was a great venue for really focusing my energy in that area. And, and then I had a sabbatical. I've been giving a lot of talks on wellness and, and burnout and its strategies of prevention and treatment. I had some sabbatical time, which is a, a benefit of being at an academic institution. And I thought, well, how should I spend my six or nine or 12 months of sabbatical? And it just, all the arrows were pointing in the direction of writing a book at that point, because I had really enjoyed getting the message out of wellness. This gain idea had sort of occurred to me as I tried to distill what I thought were the foremost or three or four most important ingredients in, in happiness and wellness. And so I decided to write a book. So I did, and the book did very well and led to you know more talks and podcasts and wonderful sessions with people like you, Christy, and here I am. And here you are. Now, Greg, you've got some other books in the works. Well, I have uh, written a second book, which is just which is a handbook. The first book is was originally targeting healthcare providers, so right. I entitled it "Gain Without Pain: The Happiness Handbook for Healthcare Professionals." Mm -hmm. um, 
but I wanted to write something that was for everyone. And actually, of course, that first book is for everyone. And that's why you and I are talking, not necessarily limiting our conversation to healthcare workers. In fact, not really discussing that particularly. Not at all, but, really. Right. So I think that that was a game book, really for everyone. But then I I wrote a sort of scaled down handbook, which is literally designed to be a pocket-sized book mm. um, that perhaps employers could give out to their employees. And it's called Gain Without Pain, Your Happiness Handbook. But I held off on publishing that because I'm writing a third book, which is still embracing the game principles, and it's about teenagers. And uh, you and I discussed before we, we started the- We both have 15-year-olds at home. Yes. Yeah. Fortunately, both of whom are doing well, and they're generally a pleasure to be with and raise. Um, but yes, I, I, as I said, I'm partnering with a guy named John Retker, who's a PhD psychologist who uh, was at Stanford. Now he's down in San Diego, but he treats teenagers with a mindfulness-based approach. And he's also a yoga teacher. He's a, just a wonderful person. So he and I are doing the book together. And then we actually included uh, a guy named Eric Wentworth, who lives up in Marin County. He's just a, a, a brilliant guy. And so the three of us are doing this book together at this point. And uh, I have a book agent now, a woman named Deborah Jacobs. And so she will hopefully get us a, a bigger publisher than I had for the first book. And then hopefully they will publish the second book as well. Yeah, it's exciting. And it sounds like supply chain issues are hitting the book world as well. Yeah, something that, uh, you know, I'm sure that most people listening and watching have not thought of. But uh, if you've done any work on your house or you know, tried to build a deck or what have you, you, you'll have realized that wood is in short supply, among other things. And so paper is in somewhat short supply, although I just got a box of paper from Amazon for my printer. But uh, when it comes to publishing and the volumes of paper that are needed to publish thousands of copies of books, it turns out that it's an issue for publishers. And so uh, there's a real backlog of of books that are due to be published. So um, that may or may not delay the publication of the book that we're doing now. Exactly, yeah, it's quite a process. Uh, I'm really excited about the teen book. I'll have to have you back again to talk about that. How do you think this process is going to help teens? Well, we go back to the idea of chronic stress and you know, life itself is stressful. I think there are, uh, I think it's stressful at every stage. Um, I certainly now have less stress in my life than I have at other times. And hopefully that's uh, something that I can say from now on. And that's partly because I've sort of accomplished everything I wanted to accomplish. And I'm not sort of running as fast as I can to get anywhere anymore, but also because of my practice. I think my game practice has de-stressed me quite a bit, but chronic stress um, has lots of ill effects on our bodies, which as you and I were discussing before, sort of self-propagating. So chronic stress has adverse effects on our cardiovascular system, on our immune system, on our hormone systems, 
on our sleep. And then again, uh, you know, we talked about the fact that the three pillars that support our physical well-being are sleep, exercise, and nutrition. And when we're fatigued, when we didn't sleep well, we tend to not eat healthy um, at times. In other words, we tend to pick up, especially in the hospital, grateful families give a box of C's candy, which is sitting at the nursing station. When we're really tired and, you know, been on call the night before, for example, in my case, um, that sugar just looks irresistible. So when we're underslept, we tend to pick up sugary and fatty so-called comfort foods, which are not healthy, but they do give us a temporary burst of energy. Um, and we tend not to exercise as, as well for as long or at all when we're tired. And when we eat poorly and we don't exercise, it negatively impacts our sleep. And so this cycle just gets sort of self-propelled. And the same thing with chronic stress, you know, we, we sleep poorly. And so those other elements of our physical well-being, being exercise and nutrition suffer. And then, you know, our self-esteem suffers. We're getting a little overweight. We feel like we're not in shape. Um, we're, our patience is thin because we're underslept. We snap at people. Um, we have less patience at work. So this whole thing kind of is self-propagating. And I think the teenage years, getting back to your original question about the teen years and, and gain and, and mindfulness and happiness practice, the teenage years are fraught with so many hookers as far as things that exacerbate the chronic stress that we all experience. I mean, it's a time of tremendous change in physical status, growth, uh, in hormonal changes, um, peer pressure, um, self-esteem. And, you know, so many families are struggling financially. And as far as relationships, we have so many single parent families that are struggling. Um, you know, now there's a lot of inflation. So people are having difficulty paying the bills and buying food and deciding whether to buy food or their medicine for themselves or their kids. Um, so the teenagers, I think, are particularly stressful, as you know. And I mean, we've all been teenagers. So um, I don't know that any of us would sign up to go through those years again. Mm, um, so it's stressful. And, and the good news is that we can actually introduce uh, mindfulness practice during the teenage years. Um, but we also need to be very aware of, as parents, our relationships with perhaps another parent of that teenager, uh, of how we see the world and how we behave, because our kids are watching us. And as you know, a 15-year-old is very astute and they're watching us Christy as you know and they're watching us to see what we do to a much greater extent than they're listening to what we say yeah so we have to take care of ourselves first um but no matter what we do the teenage years are very stressful and um you know introducing a practice during that time of life and perhaps even more fundamentally, embracing that practice ourselves as parents and teachers and school administrators and counselors and social workers is extremely important. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, right. Um, it's definitely a, a sensitive time in their lives. But, you know, honestly, Greg, I think that everybody, every age, every walk of life needs this. You know, needs this gain process. And it's a very simple, very streamlined process. How did you come up with the G-A-I-N and encapsulate it in that way? <laughs> um, well, I came up with it, I just think, sort of backed into it. You know, I, I, I thought, well, first of all, for my own purposes, what are the essentials in life? You know, I, 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 I deal with the brain a lot, other people's brains as well as my own. And, you know, I anesthetize them, I uh, manage them in the intensive care unit with sedation and meds for pain control and so on. Um, so I've obviously always been interested in the brain and this idea of neuroplasticity is so fascinating to me. I remember when I, uh, was, I think in the first year of my, uh, post fellowship, I did a residency in anesthesiology and a residency in pediatrics, and then a fellowship in pediatric anesthesiology and a fellowship in pediatric critical care medicine. And then I was done at the age of 30 something. And my first year out, I was taking care of a baby in the intensive care unit who had a massive hemorrhage, oh. uh, an intracranial hemorrhage, and she bled into most of her left hemisphere and rendered most of her left hemisphere non-functional. And so initially, you know, she wasn't moving the right side of her body and had many other signs of of having half of her body basically not work based on that half of her brain that wasn't working. Mm. And the reason I brought that up is because years later, when I saw her, when she was seven or eight years old, she looked like a normal child. She had a little bit of weakness on the right side of her body, not severe. She walked with a very subtle limp. Her left arm was a little bit weak. But given that she had really lost half of her brain, the idea that the other healthy half took over all of the functions of the half that was non-functional was just an eye-opener to me. And that is neuroplasticity. And certainly newborns and infants have a lot more plasticity in this regard in terms of recovery of brain function. But we all have this quality of neuroplasticity. And so this idea that we can actually change the way we think. So you asked how maybe that bears on me coming across the gain principles. Mm -hmm. I, I thought, well, I've read a lot of Deepak Chopra's work and other spiritual writings, and there's a lot of stuff to remember. Like as a student of Buddhism at university, tried to remember the 12 steps of this and the 10 ways of that. And I just, I couldn't do it. And so I thought, why don't I come up with three or four things that people can remember and maybe I can tie them together in an algorithm. So by that time I'd been thinking, well, what are, what are the most essential things to happiness? And gratitude is one and everybody kind of appreciates that. You can be poor and happy, you can be physically disabled and happy, but you'll never see someone who's ungrateful and happy. 
And there's a lot of work on gratitude and journaling and so on. So gratitude is very well established as a key to happiness. Um, the serenity prayer talks about acceptance, discerning between what we can change and what we cannot change and having the wisdom to accept that which we cannot change. And so acceptance seemed to me to be an important part of life because we all have pain and it's a matter of how we deal with it that will determine whether we're going to be happy or less happy. Yeah. And then, you know, in reading John Kabat-Zinn's work, this idea that one can be aware of the present moment on purpose so that intentionality seemed to me to be requisite because I was becoming aware that our brain's default mode is not consistent with happiness. So we have to do something about that on purpose, intentionally. And then the non-judgment thing also, you know, as, as we, you know, set out to discuss today, judgments tend to be negative. We have this negativity bias and it tends to bring us down. And so, um, you know, I was at a Qigong retreat a couple of years ago before COVID and the teacher was a, a wonderful Qigong instructor named Ming Tong. And he had us do a, an exercise where we paired off and we looked at each other and he said, I would like one of you to say to the other one, you are good five times and then switch. So we said, you are good, you are good. And then the other person said it to us. And then he instructed us to say, you are bad five times. And we switched. And then after that, he said, how did it feel to tell someone and be told you were good? And everyone sort of nodded that, yeah, that felt good. How did it feel to tell someone and be told you are bad? Mm. And people said, yeah, that didn't feel very good. And I was thinking, you know, there's a message here beside that. And just then he said, in fact, they're both judgments. And the person who said you are good five minutes later could decide that you're bad. Maybe you do something they don't like. And so they think you're a bad person. So being judged and judging others is unnecessary and mostly detracts from our ability to be happy and present. And so that occurred to me as a fourth element that's really requisite in a happiness practice. And then, you know, the GAIN acronym, I thought, well, I can remember four, an acronym that's four letters. Uh, three may not be quite enough. Five is too many. Four is a good number. So that's how GAIN was born. <laughs> well, and it makes a clever title and with alliteration too. So that's rather nice. Yeah. No, this is a fantastic system. I think it's very easy to follow, uh, very power, impactful, powerful, and meaningful. And I am full of gratitude that you brought it into the world and are telling people about it. I'm just excited that you'd come on my little show and tell our listeners about it. I think it's so important. Um, can't wait for the, your next books to come out. That'll be fun. And um, yes. a website that tells all about you and what you do. What's your website? Yes, and, and it is uh, all lowercase, greghammermd.com. G-R-E-G-H-A-M-M-E-R-M-D.com. And there's a lot of media there. Hopefully this chat we're having will be up there soon. And uh, there's a link to the book, which is on Amazon. 
but you have so many other things as well. You've got videos on healthcare workers and burnout, uh, understanding yes. burnout and chronic stress, how to support caregivers' mental health, very important, and staying positive during the coronavirus, among you know much more that you are so generous in sharing. And I, I thank you for having all of that available to us. The healthcare worker or not, it's important. So thank you so much, Greg, for being with me today to Radiate Non-Judgment. I really appreciate it. Anytime, Christy. It's always a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you. Radiate Wellness is an international community of holistic and alternative healers dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. I'm Liz Winter and I have been a medium and a spiritual development teacher for over 30 years. On my podcast, All Aboard the Mediumship, I want to share the message with you that there is a wealth of love and comfort available to you from the spirit world. On my podcast, you can experience this comfort and peace for yourself through gentle guided meditations and helpful messages. Make sure you subscribe and follow so you never miss an episode. Part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network.